Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. Now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. Tonight we are celebrating the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., a man who fought for civil rights and attempted to bridge the gap between the races. He worked to bring hope and healing to America, hope and healing that we are in so need of today. Tonight's episode is very special, as I said, and it's twofold. There will be an open mic reading, as well as a reading by noted poet Joseph Frost, who will share poems from his acclaimed collection, Raising King. Tonight will be a feast for the ears. Joseph, are you with me? I'm with you, and I'm ready for the feast. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Fantastic. You. Your book, Raising King, tell us about it. Well, it's, it's a long time in the making. Um, I started to teach Dr. King's life and work um, back in the early 90s uh, when I was teaching at Notre Dame. And uh, these, po- these poems are reflecting on Dr. King's work has been just kind of rolling around my head for a long time. Um, a few years ago, I uh, was teaching a composition class at American University here in D.C., and uh, a colleague knew of my interest in Dr. King and so urged me to do a, a class on him, a, a writing class, but using just his work. So what I did was um, three of, his, of the books he wrote during his life, scholars uh, consider his political autobiographies. Uh, stride toward freedom he writes uh it's all about the montgomery bus boycott he's about 27 years old when he writes it he's a young young man then why we can't wait uh he writes about the violence of 1963 he's a little bit older a little bit more seasoned and then where do we go from here chaos or community he writes in 1967 the last year of his life so uh all the time I was teaching the class using those three books, I was thinking there's a poetry book here divided up in the same way. And so that's mm-hmm. what I did with Raising King. It's got three sections um, stride toward, with quotes from Stride Toward Freedom, then from Why We Can't Wait, then from Where Do We Go From Here, and um, poems then that respond to some of Dr. King's words from when he is a, a, a young man in Montgomery uh, all the way to Memphis. All right, very nice. I'd like to hear from you, though. What was an early experience where you learned that poetry or poetic language had power? Hmm. You know, it was probably in high school, uh, and I can remember out in Southern California sitting in this kind of basement classroom, uh, ninth grade English, and reading uh, Frost and Sandberg and Langston Hughes, Emily Dickinson, and just really being taken by these poets and what they were doing, that there was far more in their work than was the literal meaning of those words, that the craft they used added to it, sometimes double meanings that they were able to, to pull off from good line breaks and images. Uh, it just struck me this is a really rich kind of language. 
And so like, yeah. like, like most poets, I probably started writing some really bad poems, um, right. you know, continued on and uh, have really been writing ever since. Right. You know, that word power is such a strong word in itself. And I think about your work. I think about Dr. King, just the relationship between the two of you, actually, in terms hmm. of what you've been able to do. Um, well, he I'm really excited about tonight. As we have an opportunity to talk about Dr. King's life and legacy and power of the yeah. power of words, that is so important. And he knew that the power of words. He certainly used them uh, to great to great effect to, to teach, to encourage, to motivate, uh, to keep people doing very hard things. Um, no surprise, we're still reading his words today. Yes, very much so. Speaking of surprises, were there any surprises when you read when you wrote your book? Anything that you learned about yourself? Wow. Um, yeah, I, I think you know, uh, like most or like a lot of writers, I I overwrote the book. You know, I had far more poems than would eventually fit, um, and so I think I I had to sort of tame or kind of tamp down some of my own preferences about Dr. King's life uh, and try to make sure that the poems that really did end up in the book give a kind of a comprehensive sense of, and, and an honest sense of his life. So, um, you know, if you, I think people are sometimes, a, you know, people today in 2021 are a little bit surprised maybe at how many of the poems really reflect his deep commitment to nonviolence uh, how many of the poems really connect his to his deep commitment to Christianity. Uh, but, you know, those, those two things both are related, but they are there. You can't take that. You can't pretend that you're talking about Dr. King's life. If you aren't talking about both of those things, nonviolence and, and Christian faith, he was obviously a committed Christian who understood that that meant he needed to be nonviolent. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, kind of just, just realizing I really here was coming a book that was different. You know, I'd never written a book entirely about one person uh, and that it, it needed to have a kind of honesty and integrity. Uh, and so I had to pull back on some of my own concerns, I think. Yeah. When you say concerns, what do you mean? Uh, I mean, I, I might have wanted to use more of his kind of militant quotes. I might've wanted to use, and, and I, cer I certainly do. Some of that is in the book too. Um, I think uh, some of the, po many of the poems in the book are in Dr. King's voice. And that is a, is a complicated thing to, to try to do, I think. Uh, so I had to really just make sure that I was true to him. Um, you know, a lot of people would say that someone that I, I am a white man, that someone who looks like me should not be writing in his voice. Uh, and mm -hmm. I understand some of that concern. Um, I'm also somebody who just deeply believes that if more people knew his life to work, that the world would really be better. And so I, I mean, I, while I can respect some of those concerns, I obviously made the, still made the choice to write, to write the poems. Um, and so you know, I think the test of, of it is, you know, did the poems sound true to him? And that was what I felt like I had to do. 
Have you heard any response from his family? Uh, I have not, uh, though the um, the King Estate. I mean, we we had to get with the publisher. We had to get um, permission, uh, you know, to intellectual property rights because every poem has uh, a title uh, that I've written, and then an epigraph, which is a quote from him. Uh, sometimes just one sentence, sometimes several sentences, and then the poem that responds to to that quote. So his his words are in are on every poem. Um, so it wasn't you know personal uh, uh, permission in the family, but it was legal permission from the king estate to use that to use right. the words. Right. Yeah. Well, without further ado, I'd like to turn the program over to you. Everyone, okay. this is Joseph Roth. Thank you, Michael. Martin Luther King Jr. Prologue 1. In the beginning was a boat, swollen with humans history would call slaves. The men who loved these boats thought they knew Jesus. They prayed Jesus. They ate Jesus. Their boat cut the waters like a whip leaving a weeping scent in its churning wake. The moon lit the water around the boat, but the moon did not light the boat. The boat worked through the waters in the dark. Now the boat is dust. The whip survives. Two, a man came who was not a slave. He was not the moon, its light, or the water. Like the boats before him, he too cut the water, but he was not the whip. He had bones the whip could not reach, but he was not the bones. He had light to cut the darkness, but he was not the light. He met the darkness when the whip became a bullet. The man stood and the bullet came. His bones are dust, but the man survives. And this poem is called Christology. Dr. King wrote in Stride Toward Freedom back about Montgomery, it was Jesus of Nazareth that stirred the Negroes. The white people often say I'm stirring people up, causing a ruckus where there was no ruckus before I came. It might seem that way to them because they've never been at a Negro family's dinner. They've never tasted the angry exhaustion that lives on this side of town. They've never sat in Reverend Abernathy's church. They've never heard him preach the Jesus he knows, the leper-touching Jesus, the cheek-turning Jesus, the enemy-loving Jesus. That's the ruckus. It's a holy ruckus. And Jesus brought it, not me. Dr. King goes on. Uh, in a poem called Tired, wrote about tired feet for tired souls. Also about Montgomery and the walking that took place during the boycott. These feet slip between sheets to a morning floor. Before coffee and language, they know the air. They welcome sock and shoe. Laces hold them ready for the work of the day, of being beneath. They create the straight way of sidewalk, the step of curb, the caution of crosswalk, the patience of standing still. When heel and arch and toe press leather to concrete, 
scuff the smile of protest, the unmistakable joy of defiance. And Dr. King wrote about the first day of the bus protest called the Day of Days, December 5th. You plan and call and organize and prepare for every eventuality, but you never know what will come. My wife and I woke earlier than usual, and I was afraid. I was still saying, if we could get 60%, I would be satisfied. In my mind, buses rolled by with black people atop bus and hanging from windows, dragging their feet. White men and women filled the bus laughing, doubled over laughing. What was I thinking would happen? I was in the kitchen whispering over a cup of coffee when I heard Coretta cry, Martin, Martin, come quickly. I stopped praying and ran into the living room, breathing like an army. A slowly moving bus rolled down our street like a hearse, the casket still years away. Coretta sang into my faithlessness, darling, it's empty. I could hardly believe it. Sometimes believing and knowing have to happen at the same time. He wrote about the mass meetings in Montgomery that kept people motivated and kept the boycott organized. Mass meetings. These meetings were our lungs. Here we breathed. We needed to christen an organization, a leader. I didn't know these people. Abernathy was my only friend. We baptized ourselves the Montgomery Improvement Association, a name as good as any other, better than one that sounded too much like their white citizen councils. They were named for terror. We were named for resurrection. Then it was me. Put the new guy out there. He hasn't been beaten by them yet. He has a degree of distance that will throw them for a bit. My only real qualification, I didn't yet know the density of the human fist. Dr. King also writes uh, in Stride Toward Freedom, the nonviolent resistor not only refuses to shoot his opponent, but he also refuses to hate him. This poem is titled Inheritance. That angry voice on the phone was once someone's dearest baby, a most promising little boy who said, listen, N-word, we've taken all we want from you before next week, You'll be sorry you ever came to Montgomery. This beautiful little boy, smiling, giggling, today sings out a hatred he has learned, a song his country handed him. His hatred and fear are not really his. He inherited them. He took them into himself without knowing how gruesome they would taste, how they would sicken him too. I cannot hate him for inheriting this. I will not destroy him just because someone taught him to destroy me. While in Montgomery, uh, a bomb was put on Dr. King's porch that blew up. And he writes, um, 
After putting the baby to bed, Coretta and Mrs. Williams went to the living room to look at television. About 9.30, they heard a noise in front that sounded as though someone had thrown a brick. In a matter of seconds, an explosion rocked the house. This poem is titled Bomb. War is like this. Two women, a baby, a man gone, a man lost. I was lost like this. A baby in the back bedroom, a wife shaking, unable to be still, a friend calm but about to break. A crowd gathered. I ran home to see what was left of me. The crowd was angry, and I wanted their anger to love my own. But my wife's shaking stopped, keeping me from breaking, keeping me from becoming the bomb I feared. Dr. King writes in, a po- uh, in Stride Toward Freedom, Coretta had already fallen asleep, and just as I was about to doze off, the telephone rang, and it was another one of those get-out-of-town-in-a-week uh, phone calls. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I spoke, I have nothing left. This poem is called Midnight. I have always been here, in this midnight kitchen, in this midnight city, in this midnight life. I have always known this is when the strength comes, in this midnight country, in my midnight throat, from this midnight God. Another bomb was put on Dr. King's uh, porch that did not explode, and this poem is called smoldering. The language spoken by an unexploded bomb is the language of possibility. It is a terror tongue. It sounds like a silent infant. It echoes like a still woman, silent on the floor of her own home. It is where they wait for father and husband. Home is where the heart breaks into pieces the size of privilege. Is it my good luck that 12 sticks of dynamite did not sing the chorus they were taught? Is it my good fortune that a fuse doesn't always complete its work? Here is America's truth. This bomb was not the only thing smoldering in my home. And each of the three sections of Raising King I decided to end each with a poem in the voice of Coretta Scott King, um, for, for whom Dr. King's life couldn't have been possible if not for hers and her support. She was a trained singer, and so this poem is titled Coretta Scott King, Montgomery. If there is sheet music for this city, I've never seen its likes before. The melody keeps changing. Just as I start to sing one line, I see the notes at the end of the line dodging and ducking in every direction. Quarter notes dart from their place on the staff and try to stand up taller, puff out their chest like whole notes, keeping the voice alive longer. I can sing almost anything, but this shape-shifting opera of shoes makes it hard to breathe. It keeps moving from solo to choral piece. I know there are other voices, 
and I know their timber is all shoe and sweat, but I fear they will leave me bare. Dr. King begins his second book, Why We Can't Wait, about 1963, uh, describing a boy uh, in Harlem and a girl in Alabama. This poem's titled 1963, One. A boy sits on his stoop. The house leans hopeless as he is. The rats love him and his family. They know him. He has nowhere to go. He has nowhere to be. He dreams of nowhere. When he wakes after dreams of nowhere, he goes nowhere. His school forgets him. He forgets him. His parents work, but their exhaustion forgets him too. Is he a dream? Has his country deferred him? Can nowhere explode? Two. A girl sits on her stoop, the wood of her home older than her grandmother, but not as sturdy. The field where her parents work is thirsty as she is, but not as angry. She sits and remembers school, but learns now in a field because debts are loud. They shout more fury than books. Three, this is the year young people will sing fury in a melody that hurts, in a rhythm that burns, a flame so hot fire hoses shove these singers against walls. But those hoses and their water, their judges, their county clerks, their governor and their country cannot extinguish anything. Dr. King would be the first to say that he did not do much of anything he did alone. And always at his side was Ralph Abernathy, an older minister. He met in Montgomery who was with him until his last moment. When they were deciding to go to, uh, to be arrested in Birmingham, uh, from w- when he would write the letter from Birmingham jail, he, he asked Ralph Abernathy to get arrested with him, knowing that he wouldn't be able to be in his pulpit on Sunday, which Rev- Reverend Abernathy wanted. This poem is called Martin King Speaks of Ralph Abernathy. I knew what he would say before I asked him, but asking is my religion. He shook his head and smiled like he always does. He spoke in the language of brother, in the dialect of love. He knew the buoyancy of a decision made. He knew I did too. Once you say it, the doing is easier. Once you do it, your body floats into prayer. Dr. King also describes... um, a bomb being placed on his brother, uh, Reverend A.D. King. Uh, His house was bombed in 1963, and this poem is called My Brother's Keeper. I am, of course, my brother's keeper. I have always been my brother's keeper. We have always been our brother's keepers. His home is our home. The bomb on his porch is the bomb on our porch. The men who leave the bomb in the darkness, they are ours too. Moving into poems from the last book. Um, The last night of his life, most people know uh, Dr. King spoke in the Mason Temple uh, in Memphis. uh, And so this poem is called The Mountaintop. 
and exhaustion rests on my skin like sweat. Tonight, I am a fire with this truth. I and we are one. Whether I see victory does not matter anymore. Whether my children see it is all that matters. That the children of Memphis see it is enough. Tonight, I am alive with this comfort. I can let it all go. The worst fear will eventually come true. I will not know its day and time until it is here. Even then, I might not know it. Tonight, I am released with this glory. My own eyes have seen it. Tonight, I am at peace with this terror. And let me finish with the last poem uh, in the book, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Epilogue. One, when his body is carried through the streets in a wooden wagon older than his father, when his children look on his lifeless skin with curious grief, when his widow's face waits in stillness, knowing every day from now on could be a bullet. Two, like the many who killed him, he too knew Jesus but his life prepared his hands for the silk of wood. He readied his palms for the kiss of nails. He knew more than knowing can say. He bled more than blood. Three, most days, memory is the enemy, but no one wants a memory. We want the touch, the real man. One day, memory is all that remains. We will all burn down to its truth. Four, he knew memory wedded to time makes possible. He knew memory loved into the future can crush a bullet into sand. He knew this was not hope or magic. He knew memory burned into tomorrow is not a certainty. Every moment waits to be used. And using time carefully is our why. Using time with love is our revolution. This is how we raise him. This is how we rise. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Joseph. Incredible work. You're welcome. Thank you. Incredible pieces. Incredible, incredible, incredible. What do you hope that readers get, in quotes, from encountering your poems? Hmm. What do you want them to get from it? I want them to have an encounter with this man. I mean, I I hope that um, this is a kind of a biography. It's a kind of a way to meet someone uh, and that he might become then a kind of a companion uh, Mm. through which we make better decisions through which we um, make decisions about how to treat other people, how to treat ourselves, how to build a country. Um, But I think essentially I I, I want the book to be an encounter, to be a meeting. Um, So people feel like Dr. You know, in the book, I, I like to say he invites us to walk with him from Montgomery to Memphis. And I think so that, he can be with us for the rest of our lives. 
think, and I, and I don't mean in some kind of fuzzy way, like I'm a fan or something, but right. so, that he, so that I, the choices we make in our lives, we make thinking about him and thinking about things he said and things that he did and things that happened to him so that he almost becomes a, a part of our ethics. Um, but we have to, most of us have to have an encounter with someone first before they have that kind of deep uh, impact on us. And he has had that on me and he still has that on me. And I, I, I just want to invite people to walk with him from Montgomery to Memphis. Uh, Cause I think if they, if people are really open to him, um, he will come into them and, and he won't let them go. Wow. I commend you, my friend. Mm. Well, what do you, you think as, as we think about Dr. King today, yeah. based on your research of him, what do you think he'd say about what's happening today in our world, in our country? Yeah, yeah. And, and this moment in our country is so loaded, isn't it? I mean, it's really... Yes, it is. It's really something. Um, well, I guess a, a couple things. Um, I think he would look at the great inequality, uh, economic, racial, educational, you know, in our, across the country and across the world. And I think it would break his heart even more to think that all of these years since 1968, uh, and we haven't made more progress than we have, um, I think he would, he would shake his head and have a whole lot of hard things to say to us about that. Um, you know, vast wealth and dramatic poverty, you know, so close to each other in the same country to say nothing of around the world. Uh, I, I also think that he would see the intense engagement of young people, especially that mm -hmm. we saw this past summer. Uh, in the Black Lives Matter movement and protests uh, after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, I think he would look at the engagement of young people, black and white and others, and I think he would be really excited by that. I think he would see a lot of that as, as um, the promise coming true or, or you know, beginning to come true in some ways. But I, I do think it's both of those things. You know, I think he would be very happy to see um, the excitement and the passion and the insistence in the movement uh, movements today, especially among young people. Um, but I think he would still also be dismayed, especially at the growing inequality um, in America and, and, and around the world. I think those things, you know, the, the three things he said um, – poems in the book about this, the, what he called the giant triplets, he thought were our greatest, our greatest dangers um, that had to be eradicated, racism, poverty, and militarism. Uh, I mm. think he would look at all three of those things and see not a ton of progress has been made, especially on um, poverty and militarism. You know, in, in America, we might say, well, there's been a lot of progress in terms of things like segregation. And in some ways, that's, a lot of that's true. Uh, you know, we certainly don't have, uh, you know, segregated lunch counters or, or drinking fountains anymore. Um, but a lot of our neighborhoods are segregated. Our schools are still often dramatically segregated. Um, but militarism and poverty, we have a lot of work to do. Uh, and he would, he would, he, I, don't, I think he would really call us to work on those things harder. 
let, can I turn that to you? What, what do you think? What do you think, think he would say looking at America today? Wow. I think as you said that we've got a lot of work to do mm-hmm. before we can truly be a country that stands up for what it believes in. Mm-hmm. Um, because without people coming together, there's really no opportunity for growth and development. We've mm-hmm. got to learn to be able to work together. Mm-hmm. We've got to put away miscommunication, disinformation. We've got to put all those things away mm-hmm. and look at what's true, what's real. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I would I would share and think. Mm-hmm. That we've got to come together, Joseph. Yeah. We've got to come together somehow, some way. Yeah. One of the things he says in in Montgomery um, is that uh, how the black community and the white community in Montgomery, and I'm sure in lots and true in lots of other cities too, how they really did not know each other at all. Um, Mm. How and one of his great concerns at the end of the bus boycott, for example, was that um, the black community was preparing to ride the buses uh, on a you know, on a non-segregated basis. They, they were talking about how they would do it and how they would not gloat. They would not laugh. They wouldn't say, ah, oh, we won. You know, they wouldn't do any of that. And one of his great concerns was that the white community of Montgomery did no preparation. You know, like the leaders, of, you know, in white churches or white civic leaders, you know, and of course, privileged people never think they need to prepare for anything. Um, and there, there wasn't a lot of violence on the buses afterward anyway, but it, he said it was, he thought that was largely because the black people had really prepared uh, so as not to provoke anything. And, I, and that speaks to exactly what you're describing. You know, like we don't know what it's like to, to work together. If you've never been in a no, classroom, no. you know, with people of other groups, if you've never um, been on a work group with people of other groups, if you've never had a boss or, or people working under you of different groups, you know, I think you're right. We don't have a whole lot of a whole lot of hope, but we have to come together and learn how to work together. And you know, I, too many people live very segregated lives still in America, and that's part that's part of our problem, I think. Yes. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for sharing your work. As I said earlier, it's incredible. Is thank your book you. available on Amazon? It is. Yep. Raising King, everybody. We'll be right back. Celebration to the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
The call-in number is 646-787-1631, and I think we've got a caller, Joseph. Terrific. All right. Let's bring this person on. Eric mm. code Hello? 202, the first three numbers are 258. You're on the air. Hello? Uh, hello, Michael and Joe, Joe. This is Greg Luce calling from Arlington, Virginia. Hey, Greg. Hello, really glad Greg. you called in. Yes, Michael, you remember you interviewed me one time, uh, I guess, oh, a year yes, or so course. ago? Of course. And, of course, I love of course, I want you to come back. I, I, yes, well, say the word, and I am prepared. Uh, in, in the meantime, first of all, of course, Joe, it's always a great pleasure to hear you, and, you know, your book is fantastic. There's nothing more I can add to what Michael has already said. Well, thank um, you. Since you had made the offer, Michael, I do have a relatively recent – in fact, it's the most recent thing I've finished that I think somewhat relates to the theme, and it's it's, it's very personal to me. Um, it's not too long. If you'd like to hear it, I'd be glad to share it now. I'd love to hear it. I'd love to I hear it. I would say Gregory is a fine poet, and I'm I'm really grateful. Thank you, Greg. Yes, thank you. Oh, I will mention, too, that Joseph, besides being an excellent poet, is also the most generous friend you could ask for. He's written blurbs for two of my books, so um, I'm glad to be able to give back a little bit. Uh, this poem is sort of dealing with my own ancestry and what it, what it, sort of what it's like to be a white Southerner in the 21st century with a legacy of slave owners and Confederate soldiers, but not really making it about me, but just sort of trying to come to terms with it. So this is called Coming Into Texas. They came in from the Northeast, my ancestors, and there were big rivers, Tennessee, Mississippi, red, to cross, but they did it in daylight, not after dark or hidden in the back of a truck, and they didn't need to swim. They rode in through the tall grass, over the red dirt flatland, up and down the rolling hills, through luxuriant wildflowers, to Grimes in Montgomery counties. I don't know if they brought their slaves or acquired them after settling, but settled they did, and soon spread out, putting their slaves to work on the rich land, propagating the Dunhams and Woods down to my mother's mother. I came to Texas by way of my mother and Yankee father, descended from Puritans. Both gone now, they left me with mixed blood and mixed feelings about all my forebears. Thank you. Hmm. Nice. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, Gregory. They yeah, did it. They me. did it in daylight. That's a great. <laughs> that's a that's a great phrase. It points out the difference they without pointing daylight. out the difference. Thank yeah. you, Gregory. Wow. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> All right, we've got another caller, Joseph. Great. Good evening. This is Michael Anthony Ingram. Is this Valerie? It is, it is, it is. <laughs> Hello, Valerie. Hello? I'm here with Joseph Ross. How are Hello, you today? Valerie. Hello. Hello. My cat, hey, hey, stop it. My cat is currently chewing my notebook. Stop it. <laughs> Sorry. So I have two poems tonight, but Michael, Dr. Anthony, Dr. Ingram. Yes, yes. Did you know, do you know about the... Uh, Dorothy Parker, she's a poet. Um, yes. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Connect. No, I did not. No. Tell well, me when more. she died in 1967, at the age of 73, she left her entire estate to him. To Dr. King. She did. 
Yes. Yes. I did not know that either. She did. <laughs> wow. I looked it up. I looked were, that up. Were they friends in life? Do you know? Uh, no, she had never met him. She had okay. never met him, but she admired what he did because she, you know, had the same problems. You know, actors were being blacklisted, you know, mm-hmm. and she, wa- she wanted to do something, and she saw that he wanted to do something about what was happening, too. Hmm. Wow, he learned something new every day. I was going to say the same yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. How interesting. And I won't blow your I won't blow your mind with uh who but well who bought uh uh can you remember her name? So I won't tell you. Maybe I'll All tell right. you in an email. I'll tell you All in right. an email. All right, I have two poems, and okay. you know, you know that that. Them very short. Well, you know that both of them are very short, but this is the one. Uh, this is a brand new one I wrote this morning. You want the new one first? Yes. All right. It doesn't have a title. It's untitled. It's very short, but it's not a haiku. Okay. All right. All right. Mr. King. No one could bring. Dreams of equality and freedom. We have leaders who seem crazy for power. We need you this very hour. The end. Wow. <laughs> very good. It can All be, true. It can All be true. added to. It can be added to. <laughs> Valerie, my favorite haiku queen. you incredible, Valerie. Yes, Oh, I'm the queen! Yay! And <laughs> this one you've already heard. This this one you've already heard, and it's my. It's, you know, I said it's my version of um, anger. And you said, and I, what I read was poems of social justice. So this is justice for social. This is social justice. I think my version of being angry, and I'm not angry a lot, but here it is. Black lives matter. To me to say it makes me confused and sadder. Why is it okay to hate and hurt someone for the color of their skin? It's melanin. The end. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Very nice, Valerie. Thank you. But it's it's true. It's so true. It is true. It is yeah. true. It's melanin. It's melanin. It is. Wow. <clears throat> no, that's the only difference between me. Well, I'm sure there are other differences. I'm female, and you know, uh, Doctor Ingram is male. But you know, yes. and both well, well, both poets, and we, he just has more of that in his skin than I do. What is the big yes. deal? What is the big yeah. deal? Right. right. True enough. Very true. Now Thank we could be different. You might like broccoli. And I don't. <laughs> okay, I, I won't go there. Black right. lives matter too. All right, get go All right. go. I'll go too. Right. Yay! <laughs> Thank you, Valerie. Thank ah, you. You're welcome. Bye. Yay! Bye. bye. <laughs> <laughs> There's we got a another caller. <laughs> okay. Area code three zero one. Seven one zero. You're on the air. Hi, my 
Michael. Hi, Joseph. I fi- I'm, I'm so glad that I finally got to uh, listen to your reading, Joseph. Thank you. I'm glad. Yeah. And who, who is this? Uh, this is Marianne's book. Um, I've, oh. I used to go to Michael's uh, DC Poetry Project. Oh, okay. Nice. Oh, Marianne is a, is a famous poet in her okay. own right. All yeah, right. She's extremely well known. Yes. Did you know the poem, Marianne? I'm going to have to look at some of your work. Yes. Yes, please do. She has. Go ahead. I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay. Yes, this is a fairly new poem. Um, It's it's related to social justice in that it's about um, a young woman, Jade uh, Gray Christie, who's uh, Afro-British and, um, you know, like many um, African-Americans, I guess Afro-British too, um, she suffered from uh, COVID and, um, you know, it's, it's about her experience. The Long Hauler. She shuffles up the smooth pavement, the sidewalk she used to stride on. She staggers as if she were carrying sandbags, hands and arms empty without even a purse. She feels muffled, a bedbound summer's flesh hiding last winter's bone and muscle. The air around her slows, leaves and dust drift past as she skirts a puddle, something she never would have seen before. Once she ran through the park, Winged feet in running shoes worn only twice before this virus took her like a woman in the horror flick she streamed all summer. To the white women walking past, she has become one of the young girls scattering empty potato chip bags in the gutter like the petals of the overripe flowers that they are, spilling out of cheap, bright shorts and crop tops needing to be trimmed. Maskless, grasping for air like a cane or railing, she pauses, praying for far off next summer when she can fly through the park again. Mm. Mary Ann, that was exceptionally nice. Thank you. Yes, thank you, thank you. I, you know, I hope I, I brought a little attention to, um, you know, I guess. Some aspect of, of social justice. Oh yes, oh please. for sure, yeah. Yes, Marianne. And Marianne, please Thanks. spell your last name so that Joseph will know. Yeah. Okay, my last name is S as in Sam, mm-hmm. Z as in zebra, L Y K. It's easy to pronounce once you know it. Um, mm-hmm. You, um, the Y is act. No, actually, uh, it's easy to pronounce because you don't pronounce the Z. It's slick. You know, the oh, Y is, is short is a short I. Yeah. Well, thank you, and thank you for sharing for calling in, and thank you for sharing that poem. Yes. Oh, yes. Thank, thank you, you Marianne. He's here also. If I can give the phone to him. All right. Ethan. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? Good. I'm quite well, you sir. Doing? Yourself? I'm good. Good. Yeah. I've been enjoying the you program. You like to share, Ethan? I do have a poem. Um, 
I think it fits the day. It's called Native Americans Return to the Suburbs. Hmm. Native Americans tread, creep, sprint, and leap through American suburbs. Rabbit nibbles incessantly on vast salad bowls, breeds copiously on a million lawns, watches nervously for enemies' cat and car, feels a rush of adrenaline, strange joy as she dashes into a thicket. Rabbit suckles her babies, loves them deeply, forgets them quickly, remembers the centuries, lives in the now. Deer no longer dwells in shadows, hiding from her ancient friend, ancient nemesis, humans, for whom she has time and again and again kindly provided nourish. Nowadays, deer eyes two-legged beasts, common as the stars, as curiosities, if not quite friends. Clever fox hunts from the hidden places, preserves the gardens of her tidy human neighbors from rabbits' ravages. Fox remembers her long-lost cousin Wolf, slaughtered and confined to reservations. Fox mourns Wolf but cannot howl. Crow struts boldly down gray streets, steps nimbly between killer machines, dines greedily on roadkill, digests corpses of squirrel, chipmunk, rabbit, deer, flying into nearby yards, meadows. Crow returns her cousins to the soil from which they sprang. Crow remembers Raven, clever thief who stole the sun to alleviate humanity's suffering. Native Americans live among us if one knows where to look. Ghosts, spirits, remnants of 50 million dead, Mohawk, Cherokee, Sioux, Ojibwe, Pane, Dene, countless more names forgotten. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you for reading that. Thank you, Ethan. Ethan nice. has an ev- Ethan Goffman is his name, uh-huh. and he has an environmental poetry site. Oh, okay. What is that site? It's called Poetry and Planet. Poetry and Planet. Yeah. Okay. Good. Thank you. Sure. All right. Thank you, Ethan. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We'll be right back. We are back. 
The call-in number is 646-787-1631. Joseph, what I'd like to do is recite a piece of poetry. Good. I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> I'm going to recite two pieces. Good. One is okay. my own, and the other mm-hmm. is by Langston Hughes. Oh, wonderful. And it's his poem, I Dreamed a World. Mm. Here we go. I dreamed a world where man, no other man will scorn, where love will bless the earth, and peace its paths adorn. I dream a world where all will know sweet freedom's way, where greed no longer saps the soul, nor avarice blights our day. A world I dream where black or white, whatever race you be, will share the bounties of the earth, and every man is free. Where wretchedness will hang its head, and joy like a pearl attends the needs of all mankind. Of such I dream, my world. That's links and news. Very nice. And I'd like to share my version of The Dreamer. Mm-hmm. This is called The Dreamer. The Dreamer. I dreamed a world, and it was clear, like it should be, that all the earth was bright and full of remarkable color. Tinged and shaped images danced and laughed gleefully as they watched strife and disappointment give way to harmony and victory throughout the land. I dreamed my life, and it was rich like it should be, yet the jewels of knowledge passed on to me by my ancestors helped me to understand that all worldly possessions are given to us solely on loan, and that we must all turn them back in when it's time for us to go on home. I dreamed for my children, that they are proud like they should be, self-respecting sons and daughters, descendants of exalted kings and queens, children who are not ashamed to accept their bloodstained roots, affirming their heritage with the same vigor used to embrace drugs, alcohol, and basketball shoes. I dream for us that we are wise like we should be, intelligent men and women, inheritors of great wisdom cultivated in our ancestral homeland, wisdom that survived great oceans and cotton fields, to not only stay alive inside our minds, but thrive by a whole host of new societal ills. And I dream for you, that you are bold like you should be. The struggler has not succumbed to the struggle, and although your back might bend, it does not break. And while your spirit might shake, it does not quake. I dream for tomorrow, that it is ablaze like it should be. A path has been burned through the night, to signal a way for a future that is crystal clear in the almighty sight. I dreamed a world. I dreamed a world, Joseph. Beautiful. Very nice. So glad you shared that. I dreamed that. a world. Yeah. That's what we have to like do. Like Dr. King, we're all dreamers that things will get better. Yeah. That we'll find a way out of no way. Yeah. I think also like Dr. King. Being resilient, being able to bounce back from adversity mm-hmm. makes us that much stronger. Mm-hmm. For me, it makes me want to echo the beauty of the sun. So this is today, mm-hmm. I think I'll echo the beauty of the sun. Mm-hmm. Today, I think I'll echo. Today, I think I'll echo the beauty of the sun. Because like the sun, I plan to rise up and greet the morn with a dazzling brilliance that cannot be denied. And a majesty so great as the world cannot hide. So today, I think, I'll echo the beauty of the sun. 
And then I think I'll echo the song of the birds, because like the birds, I plan to sing a song so loud that the sound of my voice is carried across nations, and the power of my words will lift like the thunder that began life's creation. So today I think I'll echo the beauty of the sun and the song of the birds, and then I think I'll echo the color of the grass, because like the grass, my color is rich. So rich that the weeds cannot even touch me. Indignations cannot destroy me. Because like the grass, you might step on me, cut me, cause me to fall. Just give me a minute and I'll come back and stand just as tall. So today I think I'll echo the beauty of the sun, the song of the birds, the color of the grass. And then I think I'll echo the coolness of the breeze. Because like the breeze, I too am cool like that. I'm all around like that. You might not see me, but my presence is still strong like that, still proud like that. So today I think I'll echo the beauty of the sun, the song of the birds, the color of the grass, the coolness of the breeze. And then when night falls, shrouds the earth in a peaceful darkness, I think I'll echo the glimmer of the moon. Because like the moon, it can be as black as a starless night, but I still know my luminous spirit will shine just as bright. So today I think... I'll echo the beauty of the sun, the song of the birds, the color of the grass, the coolness of the breeze, and the glimmer of the moon. And then I think I'll grab something to eat, because echoing the beauty of life always makes me hungry. <laughs> Very nice. Well, thank you, sir. <laughs> your, your, poems life, always, your poems are always grounded in something very common and ordinary and human. <laughs> And I and I love that. Yeah. You know, you can you can soar, but you come back down to some of the really basic human stuff, which is really important. <laughs> well, I think that brings us to the end of our program, my friend. All right. Is there anything All else right. you'd like to share? <laughs> just just a, a big word of thanks to you, uh, not only for inviting me to this, but for your commitment to this. Didn't I see something? Um, recently that uh, you were, were near like a, the 5,000th podcast or the 5,000. Yes. 5,000 uh, download. Yes. Well, that that's something. Um, and you've given a great gift to the poetry community uh, in this way. And I want to just say my, my really hearty thanks to you. Yeah. Well, thank you, Joseph. You are the man. Ah, You're incredible. Thank and you. Uh, I will talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good night, everybody. Good night. All right. (laughs) You have just listened to the quintessential listening poetry online radio podcast with your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And make sure to catch our next episode.